Father, I thank You for the melody of the gospel that fulfills all the overtures of Your grace in the Old Testament Scriptures, and for the joy of knowing that in Jesus Christ, Abraham is also our Father, the Father of those who believed while circumcised, and the Father of those who, like Him, believed while uncircumcised. We praise You tonight for the great plan of Your grace to unite under the headship of Jesus Christ all things in heaven and on earth. We thank You for the universal appeal of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and that by Your Holy Spirit, Your Word has broken out of the confines in which it was held in ancient days to fulfill Your eternal purposes, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of Your glory as the waters cover the sea. We thank You that those waters of Your grace have come ashore upon the landmass in which we live, that for these centuries the gospel has been proclaimed with freedom and joy and power. And we pray as we come again to study that gospel and to rejoice in it, to bow before Your wisdom through it, that You will teach us from Your sacred Word and stir us in our hearts to serve You well. So, speak to and minister to us this evening, we pray, gracious Spirit, because we call upon You to come to us from the Heavenly Father, in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. And this we pray for Your glory and for our blessing, in Jesus our Savior's name. Amen. Please be seated. Now we turn this evening in our studies in Paul's letter to the Romans, to Romans chapter 9, and we are reading there this evening the first five verses of Romans chapter 9. We are, by my mathematics, about two-thirds of the way through my promised allotment of a year and a half in our study in Romans, and uh, we come this evening to the great challenge of entering into a new world, really, in Romans chapters 9 and 10 and 11 that are no less thrilling, although they have a different atmosphere from the chapters that have gone before. And we begin very gently and tentatively into these chapters by reading verses 1 through 5. And if you're using a pew Bible or some variant of it, English Standard Version, the passage is on page 945. We remember the heights that Paul has reached at the end of chapter 8, and now chapter 9, let us hear God's Word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. If you go to concerts, which I assume some, perhaps many of us do, and it doesn't really matter whether it's a symphony concert or a rock and roll concert. It doesn't really matter uh, whether it's the New York Philharmonic or U2 that you go and listen to. Every concert has its own etiquette. Now, those of you who go only to symphony concerts do not believe that those other concerts have an etiquette, but every concert has its etiquette. And usually, most of the people who are there are familiar enough with the etiquette to know when to do what. For example, when the Messiah is being sung, if you're really in the know, you know the point at which to stand, even if you've no idea why it is you're supposed to stand. But you are supposed to stand at a certain point. Or, if you go regularly, you know how irritated you are when the music comes to an end and all the people who are really in the know know this is not the point to start clapping, and some idiot starts clapping. Or then, when the soprano soloist has had a very bad hair day, some idiot will be shouting, Bravo! Encore! Encore! And I guess it's the same at a U2 concert or any pop star concert, that there are some songs you're supposed to take your cell phone out and open it up so that there'll be light… And if you're 60 years old and you've never been to one of them and you take your cell phone out, everybody in the crowd looks at you and says, what's that idiot taking his cell phone out at the wrong point in the concert? So there's that kind of etiquette, and it can be hugely embarrassing to start cheering when nobody else is cheering. And there's something about that here as we transition from Romans chapter 8 to Romans chapter 9, because every instinct in us at the end of Romans chapter 8, partly because we've got there, and we're getting to the climax, and Paul is standing, it looks as though, on the mountaintop, and he's cheering the gospel, and he's challenging every possible obstacle to his salvation to come and face him down. And he says, there's nothing in all creation, either in the heights or in the depths, that can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is in my limited musical appreciation. It's like the end of Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture. And all the orchestra's playing, and the firecrackers are going off, and the guns are blazing, and there's this great sense of triumph, and we're all standing cheering. And then we all slowly notice that the conductor has moved down, and he's standing in front of the audience, and there are tears rolling down his cheek. 
and everything becomes silent because everybody's asking, what on earth or in heaven can explain the transition from this amazing crescendo that we have all naturally and indeed rightly been cheering because the Apostle Paul has been cheering us on at this point. And now we see him with tears rolling down his face. It's not because he's come to the end of Romans chapter 8. Indeed, I think it's demonstrable that he is about to rise even higher than what he has said in Romans chapter 8. There's a very simple way to test that theory. It's by comparing the words that end chapter 8 with the words that end chapter 11, which is where this section will come to a consummation. And he says there at the end in chapter 11, verse 36, something even more amazing than he said at the end of chapter 8, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. But the question that arises as we take a little look forward to the end of Romans chapter 11, how is it that Paul has come apparently from these great heights to the depths of which he seems to speak in verses 1 through 5 in this chapter, then to get us not only back to those heights, but to a doxology that exceeds those heights. And after all, what is chapters 9, 10, and 11 doing in the letter to the Romans? I wonder if you felt maybe last week when we finished Romans chapter 8, well, that's Romans for us couple of other sermons, and we're out of here, and maybe we're into First Corinthians or something else. If you, as some of you I know do, read the scholars on these chapters, reading the scholars on these chapters is like reading the scholars on the book of Revelation. Everybody has their own take on what these chapters are doing here, and that varies from this is an old sermon that Paul had in his hip pocket, and he thought, I'll stick that sermon in here, to the view that this is actually, these three chapters are actually what the whole letter to the Romans is really all about. This is the epicenter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, neither of these views, in my own estimation, is correct. What is striking about the first is it picks up something. I wonder if you noticed it. It picks up something at the beginning of verse 1. Verse 1 is the first time in this letter the Apostle Paul has begun to say something without a transition. It's an interesting bit of homework for you. You can do this in five minutes. Just glance, not now, later on, you can glance through the letter to the Romans, and you'll see that almost every paragraph, and sometimes more than once in the paragraph, there are little words like now, and what then, and wherefore, and therefore. And you can see he's arguing through very tightly for these eight chapters the message of the gospel. And you need to do that in the English Standard Version, incidentally, not the New International Version, which misses quite a lot of those little connectives out. And so you miss the point that all of this is the Apostle Paul spinning out 
from one great key text. But the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he's spinning that out, spinning it out. But now at the beginning of chapter 9, there is no word of connection. It's actually very striking. And if instead of preaching through Romans Sunday by Sunday, I'd just started and kept going, you know, through Sunday night into Monday, we decided we were four days holiday, and we just kept going. That really would have struck us at this point, if any of us were still awake, that something new is happening here. But it's not, surely, that Paul has now come to the thing he really wanted to say. Sometimes Paul did go on till midnight, but Romans 1 to 8 is an awful lot to say if all you really want to say is Romans 9 to 11. So, what does he concerned about here in Romans 9 to 11? Well, it's clear he's concerned about his own kinsmen, the Jews. And why should that question arise here? Well, one reason, actually, is so obvious we could easily miss it. And that is that from the very beginning of Romans, he has been emphasizing that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. He's been saying this has been his great message in his ministry. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for all, without distinction, whether Jew or Gentile. And if we had time, and this is another part of your homework, we could go through these first eight chapters, especially the first five chapters, and see the number of times the apostle Paul says, now, it's not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile. It's for all. It's for all. It's for all. All have sinned. All are under the wrath of God. All are condemned. But there is good news for all. There is no distinction. Whether Jew or Gentile, there is one glorious way of salvation in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he said, this is for the Jew first. And so you sense as he, is, as he has begun to feel in his own soul the greatness of this gospel and the wonder of this gospel, the problem obviously arises, but Paul, if the gospel is for the Jew first, why is it, how can it be that so many Jewish people are rejecting the gospel, have rejected the gospel, do reject the gospel? Is God no longer faithful to His gospel? Has God rejected His ancient people? Why is it if the gospel is for all? Not all of your kinsmen are believing in Jesus Christ. Far more Gentiles are believing in Jesus Christ. And since Paul's day, far more Gentiles have believed in Jesus Christ. So how is it that it's the power of God for the salvation of the Jew first? And then there's something else, I think, involved in that. You see, what Paul has been triumphing in is the absolute assurance 
of salvation. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. But man, you're a Jew. And there are all these ancient promises that have been given. Your very doctrine of the faithfulness and the righteousness of God is a teaching that you've carved out of the Old Testament Scriptures. How can you have such confidence in this gospel if all those ancient promises that God gave to His people, you only have I known of all the families of the earth? If they are not believing, if they have turned away from the gospel, how can you have such confidence in the gospel that you will not turn away from the gospel? How can you be sure that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord when you see so many of your fellow countrymen apparently separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? And so you see there is a, there is a, there is a logical drive in what he's saying, and also because he knows what we don't yet know unless we've read through Romans, which most of us have, that there's a problem in the Roman churches. And it certainly seems to me, at least in part, to be a, a tension between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, because one of the things that they're at loggerheads about is the way they observe days and diets. And those were two of the distinguishing features of Jewish believers. They observed certain days in the Jewish calendar. They kept a certain kind of diet, and those things distinguished them from Gentiles. And you can sense they've carried something of that over into the church, as we do. We move from one church to another, and we carry over into the new church the baggage of the old church, and sometimes it can be quite difficult to kind of settle down, and there were weak and there were strong. And so, as Paul looks forward, his understanding of what God is doing in history is so important not only to the veracity of the gospel he has proclaimed, but to the application of that gospel to the condition of the Roman Christians to whom he is writing. Now, there are many more strands of what Paul has said that feed into these chapters, but I think you will notice as you read through them, and I hope you will quite outside our services, that he is essentially dealing with three things. First of all, in chapter 9, through most of the chapter, he is dealing with the question, has God's word of promise then failed? Has God's ancient covenant promise failed? And then from the end of chapter 9 into the end of chapter 10, he's asking the question, why is it that Israel isn't saved? And then in chapter 11, He's asking and answering a third question connected to that. Has God fully and finally rejected His ancient people? Now, these are massive teachings. They're thrilling teachings to follow 
the inspired mind of the apostle as he, as he ransacks the Scriptures and brings the gospel to bear upon these great issues of his time. And actually, they've become great issues in our time for a variety of reasons. In the last 70 years, they have become very great issues because we are exceedingly conscious that this division of which Paul speaks is still present in our world today. So, we follow his mind. I think it's so important, first of all, to notice that this is not just an intellectual problem for the Apostle Paul. It is not just an intellectual problem for the Apostle Paul. And if all we got out of our study of these chapters was intellectual clarity, I think we actually would have missed the driving point that Paul is making. And it's found in verses 1 through 3. It's the greatness of his grief. The greatness of his grief. He is not just concerned here to answer a theoretical, theological problem. He is concerned here to such an extent that he says his heart is full of grief. And he gives us, I think, the most remarkable index of the depth of that grief that bears comparison with anything that is said in the whole of the Scriptures. Just look at what he says about that grief, the way he describes it. First of all, he says, verse 1 of chapter 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ. Paul, just speak the truth. Don't tell us you're speaking the truth. Why does he do that? Because he wants to underscore for us how deep this is in his soul. Listen, Christians in Rome, I am speaking the truth in Christ. And then he adds to that, I am not lying. Well, you don't need to add to that. You don't need to say, I'm speaking the truth and I'm not lying. The second follows from the first. Why does he say the second? Because he wants to emphasize the first. He's using the figure of speech that you remember from college English is called litotes, where you make a strong emphasis by saying something negatively. Actually, it's a very Scottish thing to do. It's the quintessential Scottish figure of speech. may give a little indication that perhaps Paul had some Scottish blood, or that Scots have got some Pauline blood running through them. We say to our children, we don't say to our children, walk. We say, don't run. And then he adds to that. He says, my conscience bears testimony to this. And then he adds to that, and he says, my conscience bears testimony to this in the Holy Spirit. Now, for most of us in this room, it would take quite something for us to say, my conscience bears witness to this in the Holy Spirit. That would be a bold thing to say. So, you see how he's emphasizing it. And then he tells us that he feels this in his heart, at the very core of his being. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So, a little theological health warning. 
It's not possible for me to approach these chapters with a theologian's armchair interest. Oh, what's, what's Romans 9 to 11? What's Ferguson going to say about Romans? What's his view on Romans 9 to 11? My dear friends, if we follow this through in these succeeding weeks, you will get Ferguson's view of Romans 9 to 11, but that's not the key issue. The key issue is, do you know anything about this passion that the Apostle Paul has for those who have not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so, although there is some pretty strong language here, if we come to particularly Romans chapter 9, and we read Romans chapter 9, let's see how we can slay those nasty Arminians who believe in free will because we are bludgeon-carrying Calvinists. We have missed the point. We have missed the point. There's a lot in these chapters that make man seem small but you can do that and be utterly untouched in your soul about the needs of men and women, nor especially, of course, when we come to chapter 11. We all want to know what chapter 11 means. What does Paul mean when he says, and so all Israel will be saved? Let's get to that as quickly as we can, because I've always wanted to know the answer to that question. You're not the only one. But if that's my interest, I missed the point. The point is that in all of this, Paul is concerned about the authenticity of the gospel precisely because it is a gospel that saves sinners. And although fascinatingly, it, it is fascinating in these verses, there's a, there's a kind of there's a kind of cleverness in this. He doesn't actually tell us quite why he has this unceasing anguish, does he? He tells us he's got it. But then in chapter 10, at the beginning, he tells us why he's got it. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is, his kinsmen, is that they may be saved. That's what drives him. His passion is for the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of others. That's what drives him to try and make biblical sense of the world in which he's living. It's his evangelistic passion for the salvation of his kinsmen according to the flesh. And the reason this appears here is because of where he's been at the end of Romans chapter 8. When he has seen the sheer massiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of course there's a sense in which the sheer massiveness and greatness of that gospel produces in him an inner pain because he knows and loves people, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who have not responded to that gospel. And so, he wants to stress to us, and this is an enormous challenge, the greatness of his grief. Is that something you share about another mortal? My heart, broken, great and unceasing anguish. 
And this is, if anything, emphasized by the second thing he says. The greatness of his grief is highlighted in verses 4 through 5 by the greatness of Israel's privileges. And this is so interesting. It's the sheer privilege that people have had that increases his sense of grief, that they haven't grasped what their privileges are really for. And it's interesting, this is, in many ways, this is such a parallel passage to Paul's own talking about his own experience in Philippians chapter 3 that some of us saw this morning, and how earlier on in Romans he had said, now, now people who are circumcised, they have had great privileges. And now he goes into that in great detail. He says they've had the adoption. Remember how Hosea, speaking in God's name, says, out of Egypt I have called my son his people corporately have been his child, and they've had the glory. They saw physically the manifestations of God's presence in the glory cloud as they went through the wilderness and the pillar of fire and the Shekinah glory that descended from time to time on the temple. It was all theirs, and yes, theirs were the covenants the covenant with Abraham, and the covenant with Moses, and the covenant with David, and the promise in the new covenant was given also to them, and the law was theirs, the Torah was theirs. Alone among the nations, they had God's Word about how to live a life that would bring them blessing. And they had worship, they had access into the presence of God, and the enjoyment of the promises of God. How many promises are there in the Old Testament Scriptures? Great and precious promises. And theirs was the patriarchs. They could look back and say, Abraham was my father, and Isaac, and Jacob, and the patriarchs, they're all mine. And then he adds to these seven benedictions that they have experienced, that benediction to which they were all pointing when he says, according to the flesh, the Christ comes from them who is God over all, blessed forever. Now, the scholars discuss whether that's the best translation even scholars who believe that Jesus Christ is fully God wonder whether this is the right translation, or perhaps we might better say the right punctuation that leads to the right translation, because they say there's nowhere else in the New Testament that Paul calls Jesus God. Paul's description of Jesus is always kurios, Lord. And the Greek word kurios is the word that's used in Paul's Greek Bible for Jehovah, for Yahweh. There's no doubt whatsoever that Paul believes that the Lord Jesus Christ is very God. But there are scholars who doubt that he's saying it here. There are many arguments. I think probably the easiest argument for the translation in our English Standard Version, and I notice it doesn't even give any alternatives. Most of the modern versions do, but the easiest argument for it is this. 
a heartbroken man thinking about the privileges that God's ancient people have had and becoming more heartbroken and realizing that they have had the privilege of the Lord Jesus Christ coming from among them isn't likely at that point to stop and to say, let's sing the doxology. So, I think that Paul really is here speaking about this priceless privilege that his own kinsmen have experienced of the promised Messiah who is himself the second person of the blessed Trinity coming among them. He came, he who created all things came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him as the prologue to John's gospel underscores. Now, there's an application of that to us, isn't there? The greater the privileges, the deeper the heartbreak of those who know the privileged ones who have not responded to the gospel. That's not always the case with us, you know, at least in my experience. Privileged ones who haven't responded to the gospel, sometimes that hardens the heart of believers and, and makes believers critical and angry. There may be a place for criticism and anger, but it's not here. This is a place for the broken heart. This is a place for the deep anguish that the Apostle Paul experiences. And that's the third thing I want to emphasize, the greatness of his grief, the greatness of his kinsmen's privileges, and the greatness of his concern. Now, he's concerned, of course. There's a, there's a, there's a, thinking, there's a thinking issue here he's trying to work through. But the language he uses indicates to us that this is a deeply Christian emotion Paul is experiencing for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Some of you are able to think back to the early days of your Christian life when you were brought to faith in Jesus Christ, and if you were anything like me in a home where nobody went to church and my parents were never in church with me, your heart breaks and longs for your kinsmen according to the flesh to experience the saving privileges that you've experienced, or the friends you have in school, the people who are connected to you might be father or mother, brother or sister, son or daughter. You might be like Monica, the mother of Augustine, whose Bishop Ambrose of Milan found her one day in tears and said, My dear, what is ado with you? It's my son Augustine, my son Augustine. He isn't a Christian believer. Now, it's privilege that does that to you. It's the wonder and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes you have this deep sense, this sorrow, 
that you at times are able to say is like an anguish in your heart for your kinsmen according to the flesh. Yes, there is a special reason Paul experiences it, but he's speaking about what we all experience as Christians. This is how the Christian life is. When we've tasted the glories, we see the need and the darkness all the more clearly than we ever did before. Do you remember a number of weeks ago, maybe it was months ago now, it's all a blur to me, I said, referring to Alexander White, who told his congregation, as long as I'm your minister, you'll never get out of Romans 7 into Romans 8. That is to say, as you enjoy the power of the Holy Spirit, you never in this world leave behind the struggles. And I said, I think in this one instance, I can go better than Alexander White and say, so long as I'm your minister, I hope you'll never get out of Romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. We read them chronologically, but they're not describing an experience that is chronological. And I want to add tonight, so long as we are Christians, we never get out of Romans 9 either. The sheer exhilaration and ecstasy of knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, and simultaneously, now we're almost incapable of experiencing these two emotions simultaneously, but as it were, over the large scale view of our Christian lives, both of these things are going to be true of us. And in this world, there is no escape from this. This is how it is. The Christian life is Romans 5 and Romans 6 and Romans 7 and Romans 8 and Romans 9, all pulled up together. And the interesting thing is, we unbalance our lives if all we know is this anguish, but we unbalance our lives if we never know it, if we never feel that deep longing that can produce tears, if Romans chapter 8 doesn't produce this, then there's something awry with my appreciation of Romans chapter 8. What the gospel produces, my friends, in those who grasp its wonder, its grace, and its glory, is a tender-heartedness towards other sinners. And often they see that, and sadly, sometimes they don't. And in the midst of this, look at what Paul says. This is, this is mind-bending. He says, O oh God, verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Now, you don't get that by being born a Jew. That's not where this comes from. You get that from a passion for the salvation of men and women who are your kinsmen and who are known to you. And he says this very carefully, I think. 
He says, I could wish it. I know I can't. I know it would be wrong to wish this. I remember what happened to Moses when Moses said in the face of the idolatry of God's people, God, can you not blot out me but save them? And God refused to do it because in that sense he was going to blot out the Son from his own dear eternal Son's face in our flesh on the cross of Calvary. And Paul knows only Jesus Christ can bear the curse for the salvation of others, but he is dying for the salvation of his kinsmen according to the flesh, because he cares. Now, time's gone. Let me make three simple points by way of application. Number one, if anything demonstrates to us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not anti-Semitic, this is it. That's actually what Paul was accused of being, incidentally, when he was one of the few in Israel whose heart was being broken because his kinsmen, according to the flesh, were not coming to the Messiah. Second, this arises because Paul understands there is no other way of salvation but faith in Jesus Christ. You don't say this kind of thing and then say, and of course, there are all different kinds of ways of salvation. No, he says this because there is only one way of salvation, and that's in Jesus Christ. And the third practical point, which is the point I've really been emphasizing all along, but the heart that grasps the glory of the gospel that that heart so desperately needs cares for hearts that don't grasp the gospel. Do you remember those terrible words that Jesus' disciples spoke to him in the storm in the Sea of Galilee? I think they are almost the most terrible words in the gospel. Don't you care if we perish? Well, of course, he had come into the world because he cared. But what if he were to say to you, Don't you care if they perish? If ever there was a passage that has, of course, its special application, as we'll see as Paul moves into his teaching about the faithfulness of God to his Word and what God's ultimate plan is for Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ, if ever there was a passage that exhibited to us that when you grasp the gospel, it mends your heart and then it breaks your heart for those whose hearts are not mended. And this is the reason why in the churches Paul planted, one of the most obvious elements in the DNA of those churches was the recognition that they were God's evangelistic agency in the world. And so there was something about everything that happened 
in the church, something about everything that happened in the church that was opened out to a lost and dying world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is a passage that can really change us when it is let loose in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Before we close this evening, just one final thing. Perhaps you're not one of the anguished kinsmen. Perhaps you're one of the unanguished kinsmen. And you're a stranger to all this. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to you why somebody would care so much as somebody you know cares that you will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is part of the reason there is somebody you know cares that you become a Christian. Won't you do that? And perhaps by God's grace be able to do that tonight and say, Lord Jesus, I've had so many privileges, but it's never dawned on me that they're privileges that are meant to bring me to trust you as my Savior and Lord, and I do that, Lord Jesus. And I pray that by your grace you would change my life. Heavenly Father, come to us, we pray. Mend our hearts that they may be broken and break our hearts that they may be mended and that the hearts of others may be mended by the gospel. Give us grace, we pray, in this spirit to serve you for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.